G'day, it's the Bible Bloke here. Thanks for joining me. It's great to have you along. Grab your Bibles and let's get stuck in. At the beginning of December each year, we participate in a very strange ritual, the origins of which are lost in the mists of time. Out of the storage from the garage, or perhaps the spare room, comes a box or two, folded closed or taped shut, with or without the smell of naphthalene. We clear a space in the designated room and open the boxes and pull out all the bits and pieces, bibs and bobs, and spend time fitting together a fake Christmas tree. Pour a libation and reminisce over this decoration or that decoration. When did we buy this? Oh, I remember that one. Spread around some tinsel, hang some fairy lights that you had to spend several hours untangling before you get to sit back with a sense of satisfaction that once again the Christmas season has started. If you're anything like me and my family, you buy a tree and keep it for as long as it hangs together. Plastic doesn't degrade like the real thing, and although you may find some leaves dislodged by the decorations, mostly the tree survives Christmas after Christmas. I admit that our tree is starting to show its age, and I wonder if this is the year we decide it needs updating. That remains to be seen. I personally hope not. I'm rather fond of our old tree. You see, our tree joined us when our eldest was a baby. His first Christmas, my wife and I decided we needed a new tree. A big tree. So into Kmart we went, and we spent some time eyeing off the forest of plastic. Some with their own lights lit up like so many Fantasia lamps pulsing different coloured lights, fit to mesmerise. What about that one, I said, pointing out a rather nondescript specimen that loomed just over six feet. Might have to stand on a box to get the angel on top, but hey, that's no biggie. So I loaded the very long box into a trolley and offered to put our new purchase in the car while my wife continued with the shopping and gave the baby a feed. Fast forward to the car park. I have the hatch back open and I'm standing there eyeing off the box and eyeing off the space it has to fit into. It would normally have been an easy ask. I'd have folded the seats down, but you see, there was a baby seat in a way and unless our two-week-old son was going to ride on the roof, I needed to find a way to get this tree into the car. Now, being male, I was not going to admit defeat and swap the tree for a smaller model. Oh, no way. Even though that thought had crossed my mind, I said, Nah, I can do this. There is a certain mindless stubbornness that overtakes us men when doing such things, akin to a kind of madness, I think, or not think, as the case might be. 35 or 40 minutes later, it's all a blur. I had somehow managed to shoehorn this wretched tree into the car, with the baby seat still in place. Ah, such a proud moment. Exhausted mentally, emotionally and physically, and more than ready for a coffee, I found my way back to my wife who was starting to get really worried. It didn't occur to me, not for once, that I could unpack the box. The tree did not come assembled. 
not like the real life trees you drag in of, out of the forest. Of course, it was female I told you so logic that enforced this concept into my dull brain. But still, I had the satisfaction of having engineered this massive box into such a minuscule space. Don't rob me of my moment of supreme male triumph. The sheer mathematics of it was breathtaking. We got the tree home and put it up and decorated it and festooned it with lights. Our first, and to this day, our only family Christmas tree. No one quite knows who first dragged a pine tree out of the forest and into their lounge room. When you think about it, it really is a strange thing to do. It stretches my imagination to wonder at why they thought it was a good idea. There is perhaps a hint of a beginning in the tradition of the Yule Log. Back in the day, our Viking friends went out into the forest, braving bears and whatever else might be hiding there in the long, dark nights of midwinter, to find the biggest log they could and haul it back to the village. They would then set fire to it, but even though it provided heat to warm their toes and flame to singe their beards and to toast their marshmallows, and although the sparks that went up from it represented the light of hope for the summer to come, it's hardly a Christmas tree like the ones we know and love with baubles and tinsel and lights and gifts underneath. I have read a suggestion that the tree represents the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, and that originally Christmas trees required a serpent, real or rubber, hidden somewhere in the branches. But to me that's a pretty big stretch. That one just doesn't pass the pub test, so we'll look a bit further afield. One writer has suggested that the first recorded Christmas tree was in Freiburg, Germany. Oh, gotta love the Germans who love their Christmas. It was back in the year 1419, in the Hospital of the Holy Spirit. They decorated it with apples, wafers, gingerbread and tinsel. Sadly, the writer does not give sources, so this can't be verified. It sounds pretty good, but that doesn't make it historically accurate. And I have to wonder at the point of putting a food on the tree. I did find another reference to the 1419 date, also coincidentally in Freiburg, and it was the Freiburg fraternity of Baker's apprentices who appear to have seen the tree set up in the Hospital of the Holy Spirit. We still have no clue as to why the Hospital of the Holy Spirit was sporting a tree. Fast forward to 1441 in a place called Tallinn, Estonia, and there appears to be reference to a tree set up in the front of the town hall for a dance. However, there is doubt that it was a tree, as the German word used could also refer to something like a decorated pole, a bit like a maypole. We zip across to Latvia, where in a place called Riga in the year 1510, there is mention of a tree, again in the front of the town hall, that children decorated with woolen thread and straw and apples. Leapfrog a bit further forward in time and we find a tree raised at Strasbourg Cathedral in the year 1539, and later in 1570 in front of the Guildhall in Bremen that was reportedly decorated, again, with apples, nuts, pretzels and paper flowers. 
As part of the Christmas celebration, the children were allowed to shake the tree as they would have done during harvest time and eat the treats that fell to the ground. The strongest references to Christmas trees seem to come from the Alsace region where it seems a citizen was allowed to go into the forest to gather one pine in length of eight shoes. In the year 1561 there was real concern that too many trees were being given over to this burgeoning Christmas tradition and the forest was getting a bit thin. It was becoming a bit of an environmental disaster so in some places the gathering of a tree into the house was banned. Bah humbug! As these things go however the practice endured and there was lots of sneaking out under cover of darkness and trees continued to appear in people's living rooms at Christmas time. There is evidence that Martin Luther was fond of a good Christmas tree. He married one Katharina von Bora, who was one of the twelve nuns Luther helped escape from the convent in Numschen in April 1523, six years after he had kicked up the stink that started the Reformation. Luther and Katharina moved into a former monastery, rather ironic really. It was a gift from someone by the name of John the Steadfast. Being a monastery, I would imagine there was plenty of room for a tree. Although there is no solid evidence that Luther was mad on trees, we do know that he encouraged the celebration of Christmas. I might add that there is a copper plate engraving of Luther and the fam gathered around a small tree which is sitting pride of place on a table. It is decorated and has a halo of light around it. This engraving was done by one Karl August Schwertgeberth in 1856, and as popular culture goes, it exerted its influence and made a strong contribution to the possibility that it was Martin Luther who invented the tree as we know it today. There is an account of Luther walking in the forest one clear evening and, being inspired by the stars, apparently contrived a way to put candles on his tree. Which brings me neatly around to the idea of decorating said tree, imposing its presence, pun intended, in our many and various lounge rooms. Perhaps it had something to do with the trees naturally bearing fruit that the idea of decorating a Christmas tree wasn't quite as crazy as it might seem. In the early days it was common for edible goods to be put onto the tree. Nuts, baked goods, sweets, apples. Decorations were made out of something called sugar bread, pressed into a mould and baked at low temperatures. The design was clearly visible when they came out of the oven. A bit of paint whacked onto the bickies and Bob's your uncle, edible I guess, and hung onto the tree by a bit of woolen thread. Such things as edible figurines were made of sugar, rare and expensive at one time. So it would be considered a luxury. Even turnips and pretzels were not immune to Christmas tree duty one wonders. One writer even mentions miniature marzipan squirrels that would be set in the branches to peek out. There were even sugar rabbits holding leaves of cabbage in their little front paws. Might take off, except rabbits abandon Queensland. Beginning in the 1800s, wax figures of angels and the baby Jesus became popular. These were made on either entirely of wax or by pouring wax over paper mache. You can imagine that these things were unhappy with a bit of heat, and whacking a candle or two on the tree wasn't going to work out for the best. 
There are no detailed records of fires caused by candles on Christmas trees, but I imagine there were more than a few singed living rooms over the years before some bright spark came up with the idea of using strings of electric lights. Supposedly, an inventor in the United States in the 1870s came up with the idea of a cast iron Christmas tree that was gas lit. I really don't think it would have had quite the same appeal. Mind you, this is the bloke who has a plastic tree taking pride of place in his living room, so who am I to talk? The poet, Goethe, saw a Christmas tree in Leipzig in 1765, and of course it had candles, and of course he took pen to paper and jotted down some deathless prose. Of course, whacking some candles on the tree was kind of inevitable, seeing as how the tree provided hope for a future beyond winter. It also reminded folk of Jesus being the light that the darkness could not overcome. I can only imagine in houses where there were no electric lights and you had to rely on candles what a fully decked out tree must have been like, safety concerns aside. The atmosphere created must have been a real nod to the glory of God. I don't want to think too closely on this as I might come up with an image of the pillar of fire by night and that's not a good thing when you're contemplating a Christmas tree. Glass blowing came into its own for decorations. Colourful birds' nests and eggs and frosted glass shepherds. There were also tin lanterns, paper animals again the fire hazard. Then came the silver-plated sauerkraut. Yes, sauerkraut. You guessed it, tinsel arrived on the scene. Originally it was thin wire, either silver or gold-plated copper, and was definitely only for the rich. Although, as the Industrial Revolution kicked into high gear and the middle classes found they had more, more disposable income than they were used to, the popularity of these things drove the market. Christmas started becoming a little more commercial than it had been. For a long time, no one bothered topping the tree with anything at all. Then, again in the 1800s, people began putting the Angel of the Annunciation atop the tree or a knight made of egg whites or a bird of paradise made of golden paper, a small rooster, a glockenspiel, why, you have to wonder, a rosette made of gold foil, or perhaps simply, oh come on, a golden apple. Sometimes you would find a star or a comet with a tail, representative perhaps of the star of Bethlehem. I was interested to read that in the early 20th century someone came up with the idea of putting a mechanism that, when heated by the candles, started to play chimes, which was supposed to give the illusion of church bells. In reality, it probably sounded more like one of those greeting cards that plays you a tinny happy birthday when you open it. There is a legend that Queen Victoria had a 42-foot-high tree decorated up to the value of £10,000. It is interesting to note that in 1850, my good old friend Charles Dickens called the Christmas tree a pretty German toy, which, given his soft spot for all things Christmas, speaks volumes about how quickly the tradition was being embraced by the Brits. It probably comes as no surprise that the Puritans who had found their way to America by this time were less than impressed by the old good old tree. It is likely they quoted Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 3. Their ways are futile and foolish. They cut down a tree and a craftsman carves an idol. 
As writer Lydia Maria Child observed in 1845, the Puritan blood still flows too briskly in my veins to allow me to relish overmuch the Christmas tree. Fortunately for us, we do not send our plastic trees off to be carved into idols, nor indeed do we worship our trees, rather looking to them as reminders of renewal and hope. As America opened up as a country, German immigrants made the trip and brought with them much-loved traditions. Of course, the Christmas tree came too. Well, not the tree itself, but the idea of the tree. You get the idea. One statistic has it that some 200,000 trees were taken from the Catskill Mountains and other forested areas of New England and shipped to New York City by whatever means they could to be sold at the markets. An 1876 edition of St Nicholas magazine published a story in which Santa comes with mysterious-looking parcels, which he then hangs on a tree. It must have seemed very special to have some unknown man, not necessarily in a red suit at this time, who was not a member of the family, bring gifts. And yes, there was such a thing as St Nicholas magazine. Its full title was St Nicholas, an illustrated magazine for young folks. It ceased publication in its original format in 1940, had a brief four-issue resurgence in 1943, and then was never to be seen again. It is of note that many of the issues can be found online, for those who care to look, and it's also interesting to note that many of the issues have stories that are about or mention Santa Claus. I was hard-pressed before recording to find an exact story that, that was referred to above, but hey... With the ramping up of the Industrial Revolution came the concept of mass production and mass consumption. What better way to sell stuff than to push a commercialised version of a favourite tradition? And yet, the shape and idea of a Christmas tree has become something universal, something instantly recognisable, something that even for those who don't celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ at this time of year has come to mean Christmas. It is to the commercialization of Christmas that unknown man, eventually wearing a red suit and bearing gifts, we turn to in the next episode. Friends, until we meet again, I pray that you are blessed by deeper wisdom as you open and read God's Word. <laughs>